Welcome to Searching for the Grey Lady, a ghost from World War One at the RNRH, a Pegleg Productions podcast project created in collaboration with the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital and Radio Broccoli, funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Episode 4, Adventures in a London Hospital. My name is Keith Reeve and I've been involved with the RNOH since 1968 when I was transferred here as a child patient from Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. When I was three, my mother noticed that when I sat in the bath I was leaning to one side and it transpired that I had scoliosis, which is more commonly known as a curvature of the spine. So I was referred to Great Ormond Street Hospital and I spent several years under their care. Um, Unfortunately, things didn't work out very well with Great Ormond Street and I was transferred here to the RNOH in 1968, uh, where I became an outpatient under Mr C.W. Manning, who did an awful lot of scoliosis work in those days. And then in 1977, I became a volunteer, aged 16, with Radio Broccoli, the hospital radio service, and I'm still there. The RNOH has a long history of treating children and innovations in their care, beginning with Mary Wardell's convalescent home in the 1880s. In 1887, there were 306 patients, and out of that, 200 of them were children. However, it is very unusual, in fact rare, for an account written from the viewpoint of a child patient to come to light. During a search through some archive material, Eva Hotmanova, Head of Research and Innovation, discovered a penny notebook entitled Adventures in a London Hospital by Frank Ruck and dated 1905. Frank is a 15-year-old boy and neatly written in pencil He describes his treatment, operations and experiences in a children's ward in Great Portland Street in 1905. In this episode of our podcast, Frank Ruck's unique account is brought to life by RNOH patient Paul Gregory and is presented here interlaced with my own account of being an RNOH inpatient, a child inpatient in fact, in the late 60s and into the 70s. Whilst there are many differences, there are also many similarities, despite the progress and innovation during the 65 years or so which separate the two accounts. Here is Eva describing how she came across the notebook. My name is Eva Hauptmanova. I'm the Head of Research and Innovation at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital, and aside from my day job, I'm a keen history enthusiast. Well, amongst other things. Over the last few years at the RNOH, I've been lucky to meet some wonderful people who share their interest and who have been helping to search and compile some historical treasures. A couple of years ago, after putting a call out for anyone on site who may have things hidden from days gone by, a box of documents and photos arrived in my office. In a large brown envelope was a neatly preserved penny notebook with pencil-written diary, some photographs and letters with a neatly drawn plan of the old hospital ward. 
we have found a treasure, which captured a moment in time of our hospital and people whose lives it touched. There is something very mystical about holding and examining treasures like this. It's a bit of time-travelling experience of sorts, holding a notebook written by a 15-year-old boy in 1905, the same notebook he wrote into over 100 years ago. Inside the notebook was a letter dated 17th of May 1966, well before I was born in another part of Europe. Cheltenham, 17th of May 1966. Dear Mr Blake, I am very pleased that my young endeavours with journalism have met with your approval. The boy in the photo is, I believe, a fellow called Domingo Defoe. I took the picture. The operations I had in 1905 enabled me to walk well enough to have 16 years on the stage and even now at 75 I still entertain in character studies. But since TV I'm afraid I find life rather difficult as I have to exist on my pension, which is not easy, I can tell you. Again, thank you for your kind remarks. I am, yours most sincerely, Frank Y. Ruck. In my head, I can see the ward with all the boys and their beds assigned as in the plan. And the large nursing desk in the middle. Outside the open window, the hustle and bustle of the London street of 1905. Carriages making their way down the street towards the park. People shouting in the street and the boys up to some shenanigans, just as boys that age would be. That little diary allows us a window in time from a real experience. All those years ago, when visiting days were few, no mobile phones and tablets, and one had to stay as an inpatient, often months at a time, children and adults alike. I hope you will enjoy this little time capture moment, which has now been transcribed to be converted into a more modern medium. Introduction Dear readers, I'm about to relate to you my experiences when I was in a well-known London hospital. You must first know that I am not what is commonly called a babby, but at the age of 15. The hospital is a well-known one situated in Great Portland Street near the Great Portland Road Underground Railway. It is a large red brick building established in the year 1886. You must also know that I was put in the children's ward known as the Samuel Fielding Ward and it was full of kiddies. I was the oldest, the youngest four months old. Now I will try and relate to you some of my experiences while I was in the hospital. Chapter 1 my first day in London. I arrived in London about 10.20am on Wednesday the 13th of September 1905. It was a glorious day, the sun was blinding, the sky was blue after arriving at Paddington Station. 
Father and I took the underground way away to Pred Street, then strolled around a bit, took an omnibus to Westminster Bridge, went down the river in a London County Council river steamer and saw the famous St Paul's and other interesting spectacles, then got off at Tower Bridge landing stage and then took an omnibus from there to Oxford Street and then we went into the hospital. My sensations were terrible. So I wore a body brace all day, every day, from age three to about 12 or 13. It's called a Milwaukee brace, which basically comprised of a leather belt, which was extremely thick and hot in the summer, three vertical bars that went from the front and two at the back, round a collar round my neck, which pushed up my chin and pushed all my teeth out of alignment. My outpatient appointments used to be down at what is now Bolsover Street, which used to be more readily referred to as Great Portland Street back in those days. So I used to go into the big hall there with all the murals on the wall, so the months of the year above all the rooms at the side. We were conducted up a flight of stone steps after waiting downstairs about 15 minutes. Then we turned off to the left and before I knew where I was, we were in a large room crowded with beds, the noise deafening. Chapter 2. How I Made Friends For a minute I was dumbfounded, but I soon found my senses. The row the boys were making was, I should think, unable to be equalled. There were 18 boys in the ward, that is counting the babies. I had brought a lot of papers and chocolate and directly they were noticed a cry went through the air. Give me one please! And they also shouted, what's your name, how old are you, etc. There was a bright fire in the room. I stood still and looked at all these new faces and then soon after, father went. I had very soon made friends by lending them some of my papers and giving them chocolate. Of course, they were not allowed to get up, so I went around to them. Number 16 bed was close under a window which looked out on the front of the building. I went out on the balcony until 6.30 and then I had to go to bed. We had to go to bed at 7pm, that is to say, go to sleep and get up at the unearthly hour of 5am. I very soon got into bed and forgot all my past afflictions. In April 1972, I remember going to the outpatient appointment at um, what was Great Portland Street, Bowlesover Street, and being told that the time was right, that the spinal fusion would be taking place that summer. I was 11 at the time. So I came into what was then Colonel Woodward. Colonel Woodward and Lina Williams Ward were the adolescents, if you like, the 11 to 17 year olds. Chapter three, my first day in the hospital. I was awake next morning very early, about 2.30am, but went to sleep again, but I was soon awakened by someone shaking me. It was a nurse. I rubbed my eyes and looked at the clock, it was just 5 o'clock am. I was asked how I slept, and the nurse told me that I made an awful noise in the night and frightened her. This day was Thursday. Well, nothing particular happened that day. The next day was visiting day. Oh, how we all looked forward to the visiting days. These were Fridays and Sundays, 2 to 2.30 was the time allowed. The babies made an awful noise that night and I would not get to sleep for a good time. But at last, about 10 o'clock p.m., I got tired of keeping awake, so I dropped off to sleep and waited for daylight to appear. Chapter 4. A Little Friend 
I was awakened on Saturday morning by a voice saying, how do you feel this morning? It's time for breakfast. I assured him, all right, thanks. How are you? The voice belonged to a little fellow named Adolf Rosenthal, a dark boy with black curly hair and rather hoarse voice. Then we got up a conversation mostly about the ways of the hospital. Sunday came at last. I got up at night and went to service in the women's ward. It was very interesting. There was a ripping girl sat opposite me and we kept winking at each other and nearly burst out laughing. The service came to an end. We had a hymn and then went back to my ward and then I had to undress and get into bed. I was allowed to get up every day for a little bit before my operation. Nothing happened the next week worth relating here, so I will continue one week later. I was in here for about four and a half months and the treatment I had then was, I suppose you would regard it by today's standards as fairly barbaric in its, its visual appearance, very harsh and a very protracted period of time. I was put into what was called a halo pelvic. Now, what this entailed was a steel frame that was screwed through and to your body. So I had pins popped through my pelvis, through the hips and out the back where they just crossed over. And then a ring was screwed to my skull and then four metal bars linked up to another ring. So my torso and my head were completely immobile. So I came back from the theatre with the first parts of the halo pelvic attached. I had the pins through my pelvis and a ring attached to my head, and I was completely traumatised. I couldn't close my mouth, and never quite understood why. I was in tears, probably shock, uh, horrified, I think. It's probably, uh, as an 11-year-old, is the only way I can really describe it. Um, my mother was obviously fairly distressed with what she saw as well. That lasted about a day or so, and then they attached the rings and the bars and everything else, and so the treatment began. Chapter 5. The Ward. The Samuel Fielding Ward is a rather large one and it is painted green and electric lights hang from the ceiling. There are nine. There is a fire grate on the north side of the room and another on the south one. Beds either side of the fire grates, six beds on the east side and eight cots on the west side of the room and one big bed in the middle. A glass door which looks out onto the front and four windows on the east side looking out on the front, two windows on the west side. We have tables which can pull up towards us. We also have lockers to put our clothes in. Well, I think I will let my pencil have a little rest and continue again telling you something about visiting days. Chapter 6. Visiting Days The day is Sunday and visiting day. The ward is decorated with beautiful flowers and most of the boys very anxiously waiting for their visitors. The bed next to mine is empty. Adolf Rosenthal has been discharged. The visitors come in with a rush and go to the patient they want to see, but there is not a visitor for me. I waited until 2.45 watching the other boys, but just at that time a visitor came to see me. I was jolly glad, but the next two visiting days I did not have anyone. At last, 3.30 arrives and the gong has been rung for the visitors to go. The little babies cry about half an hour after their visitors have gone. The last visitor has left the ward and the boys begin shouting once again, but sister comes in the room and then all is silence. On the ward at the time, we had a male charge nurse called Chris Naidu, who was Nigerian, I believe. A diamond of a man, but he 
had the utmost respect of all of his staff. It was regimental, but in a pleasant way. When he wasn't here, you could notice things weren't quite as tight and pristine as they might need to be. When he was here, everybody knew what they needed to do and they did it and there was no buck in it. But he was a nice guy and he ran this ward brilliantly. Chapter 7, The Boys and Babies. There are now only about 10 boys, all the others being babies. There is a boy here whose name is Charlie Eek. He is a boy with light stubborn hair and eyes that look two ways at once. His right hand is paralysed and his voice is like an old man's. Another one is Jim, a boy who has got his leg in plaster of Paris. He is a fair boy with a quarrelsome temper and thinks he's the boss over everyone and wants his own way but does not get it. There are other boys, but not very important and not worth having their characters written on paper. The babies are very nice little boys. There is one everyone likes. I think he's the best of the whole bunch. He's a dear little chap with light golden hair. He's had his foot amputated. He's liked by all the nurses and they do pet him. He is getting very spoilt. Hector is a little fat boy with a little squeaky voice. I think there are so many of us in here with the same treatment at slightly different stages. There must have been a dozen of us at a time. And we used to act up a bit. So we used to play games with each other and with the nursing staff. And we used to have fun and games at night. We used to play football, would you believe? Those of us that could stand used to go outside onto the, the firm standing area outside overlooking what used to be the helipad field and we would play football. Um, the only danger, of course, is you couldn't look and bend to see where the ball was going or coming from. So you would just wildly kick. And if you happened to kick the next person in the shins or the back of the, the leg, it was tough. That was the way you got through it. Chapter 8, my first operation. The next Thursday was Mr Lubby's day and I had to go down for my first operation. I was shivering all the morning. I had an enema the night before and also licorice. Firstly, I had a bath at 6am, then I rested a bit. Between 11 or 12 o'clock, I had to have my feet scrubbed with a hard scrubbing brush. It did hurt. Readers, never hope to have your leg, feet or arm bad. After the scrubbing, I had them soaked in ether and then put in operation paper. Especially prepared paper, light brown colour. It looks as if it had been covered with dripping fat. And then they were covered with bandages. After, I was carried downstairs and waited in the waiting room about ten minutes, and then I was carried into the operating theatre. It was a rather small apartment, painted white, and a table in the centre, and lots of glass bottles and cases fixed against the wall. Then I was laid down on the bench, and then Dr George put some gas and oxygen into the rubber bag sort of thing, and said to Mr Lubby, Are you ready? Yes. I have given him gas and oxygen. Oh, all right, I expect I shall want a second lot. The conversation ended and Mr Lubby put on a smock and washed his hands and the gas bag put over my face. I drew long breaths and just as I was going off it seemed to me that I was being choked and I put my arm up suddenly and knocked Dr George in the eye and heard him say to the nurse, hold his arm down quickly and there was the doctor who gave me the anaesthetic. I went off.
When I woke up, they were just finishing the bandages and I felt very different to what I thought I should. I felt quite well. I was carried upstairs and was put into bed and the first thing I did was to write home. Next day, I did not feel any pain. On Friday the 29th of September 1905, I had shoes put on and a little later I had sole plates put on to keep my toes down. In my next chapter, I will tell you something about Charlie. I think the other thing as a child is you don't realise that there's anything different about you to the next child. It's only when it's pointed out to you, sometimes in the cruelest of ways, that that becomes evident and you suddenly feel vulnerable and different for the wrong reasons. Chapter 9, Charlie. I will now tell you something about the boy who looks two ways at once. On the 2nd of October 1905, he went down for a slight operation, and when he came up, he kept on crying out, Give me my dinner, oh give me my dinner, and oh sister, it does hurt, it does hurt. You must know that the patients, when they go down for an operation, are not allowed to eat anything before, and they have to have licorice the night before. Charlie thinks he can sing beautifully. When he asks if he may sing to us, we decline the offer. Chapter 10. Our meals. Breakfast, 5am. The meals really were the worst part of each day. We had for breakfast dry bread and scrape and a mug of boiled milk or sometimes very weak fries cocoa. Sometimes when I was on a diet, I had an egg every morning. Lunch, 9am. We had for lunch when there was any fruit we had it, but if there was not, we had a few biscuits or a little cake. Dinner, 12pm. For dinner, we had chopped up meat and sometimes on Friday we had fish. I had a knife and fork, the others had spoons and had to use the same ones for their pudding, which was always rice on weekdays and sago on Sundays. Tea, 4pm. We had for tea, dry bread and scrape and boiled milk or cocoa. It was the same on Sundays as other days. Supper, 7pm. We had only a very few sweets, sometimes only one and a mug of beastly boiled milk. Note, We sometimes had tea for breakfast and tea, but not very often. There was the hospital school as well, so let's not forget that. There was a Mr Pierce who brought his trolley in with a cheery smile every morning about 9.15 and he'd set up on the table in the middle of the room because it was all very communal. There used to be a big long table in the centre of the room and we'd all where possible, eat our meals at that table if we could get near to it. Schooling took place on that table. Games at evenings or weekend, you know, board games, things like that used to take place on that table. And of course, this was before the hours of 24-hour television. So the television wasn't on all day, thankfully. Chapter 11, A Catastrophe. On the 24th of October 1905, an extraordinary incident happened, but not in favour of the conspirators who were myself and Domingo de Four. I will relate to you how it happened. It came about like this. I had cocoa for tea. You couldn't tell if it was cocoa or milk, and I did not want to drink it. 
So I told Mingo to throw it away, so he went out on the balcony to see if it was clear underneath and he threw it. It was the contents of half a cup of milk over the balcony onto the people below. Of course, we did not think we had done any harm, but we soon found out about five minutes later. Sister Pinsent came up and made an awful fuss about it. She said that a gentleman had had his coat and hat spoiled and that we had to pay £2.10 for them. Sister Clay was in a rage about it and said she would have nothing to do with us and that she would not show us her magic lantern again. Of course, I looked very glum when Sister Pinsent came up to me and I mumbled out something about not doing it again. But after that, I did not think anything more about it. I think I will have a rest as Nurse Meadow has just come in the room and I hope to see some fun now. After chasing Nurse Story round and round the room, Nurse Meadow attacked me. Porter was in the room and both nurses asked him to hold me down while they smothered my face with Lifebuoy soap, a soap I detest. Then Nurse Meadow went downstairs and then all was quiet, so I washed the soap off my face. There was a period after the traction finished and they decided to do the spinal fusion, which is when they attached the rod, the uh, Harrington rod, to your back, to your spine, to keep you in place so your body didn't just compress again. Um, so that had to be fused with bone to your spine, which it, which it was bone from my hip at the time. I was in the halo pelvic for another two weeks. And then after that, I was taken into theatre, kept under traction, obviously under general anaesthetic. The halo was removed, a complete plaster cast was attached, and eventually I came round. I do remember waking up partway through that process, but I think that was intended to make sure I could still feel my feet after they'd removed all the bits and pieces and that the fusion had taken place. Chapter 12, my second operation. I had my second operation on the 26th of October 1905. I was carried downstairs to the operating theatre by Porter Harris and waited in the waiting room about 15 minutes and then another porter carried me into the theatre, then I lay down on the table. Dr George gave me the ether chloroform, the sensations were nearly the same as before. When I awoke, I asked, is it all over, sister? Mr Freeland, who operated for Mr Tubby, said, yes, it is all over, we do things quick here, you know. Porter Harris carried me up again and I felt very sick, but I kept my pecker up. I had no sleep that night because the splint, which was put on the top of my foot, hurt me so, but sister took it off the next day and put it at the side. It didn't hurt much the next day, and on Sunday the 29th of October, I had screw shoes put on again. So there was a period of, again, several weeks where I was still on my back, couldn't stand, whilst the fusion obviously took place. Bear in mind, they obviously didn't know then what they know now about how quickly bones heal and how bones fix themselves. Um, So they had to wait until they were reasonably assured that the fusion had taken place satisfactorily, so I'd had x-rays every so often. And then the day would come where I could actually sit up and walk again. Um, the only problem, of course, at any age, even if you're relatively young, which I was, I was only 11, um, is that you lose all your muscle tone. So you can barely stand up. You certainly can't easily support your own body weight plus a plaster jacket. So aged 11, I learned to walk again with a Zimmer frame. 
a few steps at a time, a few exhausting steps at a time, and slowly you build up your strength and your confidence and the muscles again. Chapter 13, Miscellaneous. On the 4th of November, 1905, we saw boys carrying guys through the streets. And also this same day an explosion occurred, which shook the room and plunged it into darkness until the fuse was mended by Porter Harris. The next day, a wet cold one was also very foggy and the ward was filled with mist. The week ending the November the 25th, I expected to be fitted for my instruments, but was rather disappointed as the fitter said he would fit it next week. There were two nurses to the ward and one night nurse who are all jolly nice. Of course, there is a sister and she does boss the poor nurses about. Visitors were not allowed to come up until she had left the ward. Lots of other people came up in the afternoon and evenings, mostly between four and six, and brought crackers and tremendous lots of sweets. I can't remember how long it was from the time I stood up to when I was discharged. A week or two, I would guess, that I was having to obviously walk regularly and exercise regularly. I remember going home and being absolutely intent on the Saturday afternoon of walking round to my local toy shop with my dad to spend some of my pocket money to buy, I think, a Matchbox car from the series that I used to collect. And dad was not certain I could make this journey. It, it would take five or ten minutes walk now, and it probably took us about 50 minutes to get there and back. So, that, you know, a good, good while. And I did it, but boy, was I exhausted. I remember being absolutely exhausted. I remember Dad being elated that I actually had made it and he didn't have to try to carry me home. Chapter 14, Conclusion. Now, I'm afraid I have not many more incidents to relate here, so I will give a few facts and then close. Thank you for your kind attention in reading this. I was ordered for my instruments on the 2nd of November by Mr Tubby. The last part of my stay in the hospital was about the same as the former. The weather being rather bad, so I think I will close this epistle thanking you again and again for your interest in this tale and believing me. Yours, Frank Ruck. Episode 4, Adventures in a London Hospital, is written by Keith Reeve, Eva Hauptmanova and Nicola Lane. Frank Ruck is performed by Paul Gregory and the sound design is by Louis Morand. The podcast is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and is created in collaboration with Radio Broccoli. For more information and details, go to www peglegproductions.org forward slash podcasts.